Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Did you know that fully one and a half billion people, almost 20% of the world's population, need treatment for neglected tropical diseases, or better known as NTDs? I had no idea the problem was this big. Well, my guest today is providing some fantastic work to end these horrendous NTDs. My guest is Ellen Agler. She serves as the CEO of the END Fund. It's a private philanthropic initiative. She's also a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Health Security Advisory Board. She also holds graduate degrees in international health from the Harvard School of Public Health and in development studies from the London School of Economics. Well, she's also the author of a new book entitled Under the Big Tree. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. So good to have you on the show. Let's start out by giving my listeners a sense of the scope of the issue you're seeking to address, which is neglected tropical diseases or NTDs. One and a half billion people, which is almost 20% of the world's population, need treatment for NTDs. That is one in every five people alive today. Wow. I mean, I think that is much higher than most of us realize. Now, among the poorest in the world, the individuals affected often drop out of school. They see their earning potential plummet. They wind up living on the margins of society. And as a result of their diseases, which can also cause anemia, malnutrition, stunted growth, as well as stunted cognitive development. Now, you have a huge task, right? This is a big issue. How do you, Ellen, keep from being overwhelmed by this enormous challenge? It's fabulous to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it is true that one out of every five people are suffering from one or more neglected tropical disease. Um, and these are diseases that can cause blindness, as you said, um, stunted growth. But I think the way I keep from being overwhelmed is I just see such massive possibility for addressing these diseases. I've, we've already seen in um, you know just the last five or six years, hundreds of millions of people that used to suffer from these diseases no longer suffering from them. So it's one of those great news stories in the world. Uh, I think that this is a, you know, we often say that they're neglected diseases, but actually they're diseases of neglected people. And I think if you really shine a light on people that are living in the margins, but that have health issues that are relatively solvable and are able to just roll up your sleeves, create community and partnership to address them, it's absolutely inspiring. And I think I am inspired every day by the partners that we work with and then seeing individuals' lives really transform. Okay, Ellen, so briefly talk about the END Fund. You're the CEO, and I understand it's a private philanthropic initiative. What's the scope of your work? And give us a few examples of the kind of impact you're having. Yes, absolutely. So the END Fund, well, END stands for Ending Neglected Diseases. So we were set up by a group of private philanthropists who had dabbled in their own philanthropy in this area and saw that for as little as 50 cents per person per year, you could treat against the five most common neglected tropical diseases. Those are blinding trachoma, elephantiasis, um, uh, intestinal worms, schistosomiasis, um, and also river blindness. So each one of those 
is pretty incredible that you can treat through a mechanism called mass drug administration, where you treat kind of like vaccination, the whole population that's at risk. But the medicines that are being used for these are all being donated. So over $4 billion worth of medicine is being donated per year, which is why the cost of delivery is so low. And this group of philanthropists thought, okay, we we think this is a solvable problem on our generation. You know, in our generation, on our watch, we're already seeing great progress. And if we could scale up, but they realized they needed more funding to do that, to support a broader range of organizations than each one of them have on their own. So, you know, a lot of them came from the finance background, and they thought the fund is something they would do in the finance world. Like, how do we support a whole group of organizations working in the ecosystem on this issue? And um, so they created the end fund, and it, now we've got – it started off as just a few philanthropists as a partnership. Now it's hundreds of individual donors, and some of those are really leading major philanthropists in the world. But then there's a lot of people who are just, you know, donating their allowance, um, donating, you know, their coffee money, donating a few hundred dollars a year and realizing they can have uh, an incredible impact. So it's been lovely since the end fund was launched in 2012 to see it really – broaden the scope. And just last year, we were able to support treatment for over 100 million people in almost 30 countries uh, against these diseases. And then in addition to that sort of treatment with medicines, there's a lot of training that goes on. So we're able to support training for tens of thousands of community health workers each year and um, government officials helping countries really manage these programs on their own. Um, And then some of these diseases, like trachoma is an example, where the, if you get a trachoma infection over and over again, your eyelashes will turn inwards. And so every time you blink, it feels just awful, like sandpaper is scratching against your eye. And you can go permanently blind from that. So one of the things that we do is help support with a surgery that flips those eyelashes around, stops the progression to blindness. You know, and that's something that costs maybe $75. So we're helping to provide tens of thousands of those surgeries uh, as well. So it's a it's really inspiring um, to see the impact and also to see it through what people are talking about as sort of a systems change lens that we aren't trying to reinvent the wheel. We're trying to find who are the best partners in each place, where does where are their gaps, where where can we support gaps, a lot of coordination with other um, partners that are working in this space to make sure that collectively we're using using the resources in the best way possible. Um, and I think that that kind of collective impact approach or systems change approach is is also one of the, the secrets of success for tackling something that otherwise would feel like such an overwhelming uh, large problem in the world. Amongst the many things you're doing, you have written a new book entitled Under the Big Tree. What led you to write this book and what are you hoping to inspire in people who read it? Well, it's I think it's um, important to think of in this book, I always think that the subtitle as well as the title and the subtitle is extraordinary stories from the movement to end neglected tropical diseases. And what inspired me were the people behind these extraordinary stories. And I, when I started meeting people who, you know, had had the surgery that I just recommended and then decided to become advocates in their community to help bring others who needed that surgery to health clinics, or I met William Campbell, who is a scientist who invented the drug to help treat river blindness, just the most humble, incredible person or met um, donors who just decided to give money that they wanted to share broadly to help make the world a better place and what what motivates them, why do they do that, and, and how do they really think through um, impact um, and collaboration. So it, it's, a, it's a, an attempt, I think, for me. I, I also uh, worked as a journalist when I was younger, and I just love going deeper into 
the why behind the what and hearing people's individual motivations and stories. I just, I realized when I first started working in this field of neglected tropical diseases that there was a lot of great things written that were in peer-reviewed journals read by a very narrow audience. And I thought these stories, these incredible heroic, some of them are absolutely heroic. I mean, one example is um, a, a gentleman who has worked for decades on river blindness and in order to go study the flies that are the vector, they, those flies only live near fast-flowing rivers. And uh, this is Daniel Boacci. He he would have to tie a rope around himself and then tie a rope around the tree to get out into the middle of the, of the water and find these breeding sites. And so the reason the rope was there is so that he didn't get whisked away and some people have died trying to to study this particular parasite. So I just really wanted to try to bring these simple, easy to understand, inspiring stories, um, and also to see sort of as an example of what's possible, how we can make really large scale change in the world, um, and who is, how do we look through the individual person's eyes who is, is helping make that and, and, and learn lessons. So I hope that this book does a little bit of that. And I also realize that it's just a sampling of stories from this movement. And there are many, many more. And I'm hoping that people kind of get excited about this work and find a way that maybe they could become part of that story, uh, that they could share it or um, just see other ways to, to make an impact. Well, as I've stated earlier, this is an enormous task. And yet you keep talking about hope. In fact, that's a key aspect of your book. Uh, so talk about what gives you hope today with all that you're facing. Well, I think it's very much the individual people who've decided to make sacrifices for others. And I'm seeing whether that's a sacrifice of making a donation or spending weeks in the most rural parts of, um, of some of the countries that we work in, having to go out and collect samples and do mapping. Uh, I see the commitment from just school teachers, like one of the school teachers that I um, met recently in Rwanda, you know, he, they had, their school had really been dedicated to doing a deworming program over the years. And the, the evidence around deworming is that if kids grow up dewormed, they're likely to stay in school longer, you know, earn more as adults. Um, and he said, you know, over the course of when they had started the, the deworming program, when he, at that particular school, there was 80% of the kids had active cases of schistosomiasis. And schistosomiasis can be deadly. And it's now down to zero. And he was sort of laughing that the, the kids are – taller the kids are healthier the kids you know he's like got more kids in school every day and he's sort of laughing like this is a challenge for us because we have to keep up with them and even they get into more trouble because they have more energy but that's a good that's a good thing um so i i don't know i think i just find so much hope from all of these stories and i also find hope in data and to see the data that we get on a regular basis of disease prevalence going down in places where there are really high intensity infections, now they're being very low or, or it's difficult to find someone who has, who has a case. And to see that um, tangible steps toward progress, I think really gives a lot of momentum to everyone that's in this community. Hey, 
Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you were aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. Now, I also want to make sure you knew about a new feature. Um, we want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows. It will be actually sent right to your inbox, and that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. You talk a lot about the physical toll on people in your books, of course, that the, these diseases will cause, but they also have a large economic impact on individual countries as well as the overall global economy. In fact, you mentioned that on a wider scale, uh, NTDs, which include intestinal worms and trachoma and uh, other diseases, they contribute to billions of dollars in economic losses each year that impact our global economy. So if countries in Africa, for example, met the World Health Organization's goals by 2020 for the five most common NTDs. They would collectively gain 52 billion in increased productivity in the following 10 years. So talk about that some more, like how did you come up with these metrics? Well, the good thing is I didn't have to come up with the metrics. Folks a lot smarter than I am in economics and statistics and doing randomized control trials were able to do that analysis. Actually, the $52 billion came from a study that the Gates Foundation partnered on with Erasmus University in the Netherlands. And we were just, um, you know, really taken aback to see how much impact these diseases were having on economies. But I think intuitively it makes so much sense. But if you think about health and education as these two twin engines that drive economic growth, if you don't have an educated population and you don't have a healthy population, their growth is, is going to be slower. And these particular statistics were around how much work people missed um, and how there was a longitudinal study um, done on um, people who were dewormed as children growing up versus those who did not get access to that treatment. And there was like a 33% differential and those that just grew up getting dewormed, um, you know, controlling for other factors were making that much more, uh, making 30 or more percent um, more in income. So it's sort of an aggregate from the individual level, uh, more than a sort of macroeconomic um, analysis. But I, I feel like we've, we've just can see that, you know, day to day. If, if someone is blind in a community and the grandchild stays home to take care of the, grandfather that was blind, it just pulls down the whole community. I mean, with river blindness, it used to be that there were places in West Africa where 50% of the population was blind. You know? And then, of course, the other 50% is taking care of, of that part of the population, and it's just tougher to get um, as much done as you would like to for your, your family and your community. I mean, one woman I met um, in Mali, she said, you know, she came to get the trachoma surgery because she said, I just want to be able to keep taking care of my grandkids. I want to be able to keep babysitting so that my my daughter and her husband can go out into the fields and, and make sure that the, the crops were coming in. So I feel like it's very, comes down to um, just human flourishing. And some of these diseases, I think, haven't gotten as much attention because they're not the big killers. Oftentimes they are just 
creating disability, creating anemia, reduced cognitive growth. Um, you know, you don't, you, you really just aren't able to live up to your potential. But it's not like a, the, the, you know, clarity of a kid dying from malaria or someone, you know, who would die with HIV if they didn't have antiretrovirals. And I think that that is something that in the whole world and global health community especially is like, okay, how do we focus on not just surviving but really thriving? Um, and I think a thriving, healthy population is, it's so clear, will also be able to uh, do better economically for themselves and for their whole nation. Well, you're doing a lot of work and you're facing a lot of challenges, but what would you say are your top two biggest challenges that you face today in order to improve the health of these communities affected by NTDs? And if you want to move towards eradicating these NTDs in the years ahead, what does that look like for you? Well, what's interesting about delivering these medicines to an entire population that's at risk is, you know, take a place like Ethiopia. The goal is to provide deworming medicines to just over 20 million kids each year. And to reach the World Health Organization standards, you may, the, the goal may be to reach 75 or 80 percent of the at-risk population, knowing you don't need to reach 100 percent. If you, if you reach that percent, you can still reduce the amount of worm load in the general population, so it's not circulating as much. You can control this as a public health problem, so it's not as, as prevalent. But I think that those kind of targets are great from a, um, sort of looking at how do you use resources in the best way, sort of a utilitarian approach of helping the most people possible with the resources that are available. But what it misses sometimes is this lens of leave no one behind. And sometimes it's the most vulnerable who live in the places that are the hardest to reach. And so you can say you've reached 80 or 85% and be really proud of that. But really what's going on with that 15% is that they may um, have a have, have a huge need. So I think for us now, we're looking at what, how do you look at this kind of infectious disease treatment programs through the lens of access and equity and um, just a human rights lens of everybody has the right to live a healthy and productive life. So I think that those challenges then are about supply chain and delivery and access to health services. Um, I think there's a great movement now of trying to focus on not just building better hospitals and clinics in developing countries, but it's really about universal health coverage. And universal health coverage means you often need to build this network of, you know, frontline health workers, community health workers that sometimes literally are going door to door, walking village to village in order to reach the, the most remote populations. And what I think is quite interesting is that the neglected tropical disease movement really helped pioneer some of this reaching the most remote. I mean, uh, you'll see in um, countries, NTD treatment coverage is often higher than vaccination coverage or higher than, um, uh, you know, basic maternal um, care in some places. So it's like what is working about that often is this community-directed treatment. And how do you mobilize, you know, teachers, very, you know, health workers with a very basic level of education to, to reach everybody that's needed it with some level of care. And I think when you lay on innovation, like now you see some of these community health workers that have a smartphone in their hand that can, you know, track data that if they don't know something about particular symptoms, they can enter them into the smartphone. So I think that those challenges of like access to the 
most remote, the most vulnerable people and overlaying how do we have innovation serve them as well as the people that might be living in, in urban areas. You know, it's interesting you say that because we had Martin Edlund on the show a while ago. He's the CEO of Malaria No More. They're a great organization. And he shared about how they become very successful in fighting malaria. So much so that there are now countries who are declared malaria free. In light of that, do you think that when it comes to tropical diseases that you are addressing, can you envision some of these countries being declared tropical diseases free in the next three to five years? Oh, that is already happening. Every year we've got new countries on the uh, on that list. So, um, you know, we last year this, for the year before eliminated lymphatic filariasis from Togo. There's a number of countries in Asia that have now been declared free of um, trachoma. There's, you know, I, so I think yes. And that in the malaria-free countries, that doesn't mean that it's eradicated. It just means that their people are not suffering um, from the diseases anymore, that they've got the vector under control, that they've got if a, a case pops up, that there's uh, treatment available. Um, so I think for sure it's like how do we shrink that map and shrink the number of people who have to worry about these diseases. And I think it's important for people in the U.S. to think um, and remember that these were diseases, many of them that we had. You know, in the early 1900s, hookworm was a major problem in the American South. And trachoma was a problem in urban areas, but it was something that was tested for when you um, immigrated into the United States at Ellis Island. They would test for trachoma. It would be one of the reasons that you might get sent back um, to your country of origin. So I feel like we've 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 made great strides, and part of that is by better water and sanitation, not just through meditation um, medication um, and prevention measures, and and also just overall economic growth. I mean, one of the best ways to prevent um, intestinal worms is having a toilet, having shoes, having paved roads, um, you know, having a sewer system that's, that's intact. So I think uh, there's, it's, a, it's a really multi-pronged approach. So I'm so glad to hear you have malaria no more. I actually admire them tremendously. Well, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned two important things. First of all, it's so easy to forget that in our own country's history, we had to face these same diseases. We just forget about that today. And then secondly, I really appreciate you mentioning how you are collaborating with other nonprofits like Malaria No More. I think people are always glad to hear when nonprofits are working together collaboratively. So thank you. Okay, so if my listeners want to find out more about you, find out more about your book, as well as the End Fund, where would you send them? Well, I'd say first to our website is endend.org. And also we have set up a special website just for the book, which is UBT for Under the Big Tree. So ubtbook.com. Um, you can also find that through end.org. But yeah, thank you for highlighting that. We'd be delighted to answer people's questions if you have them um, and find ways to in- engage more people in this cause. Again, my guest today is Ellen Agler. She serves as the CEO of the End Fund. She's also the author of a new book entitled Under the Big Tree, and I encourage you to get it. Thanks again, Ellen, for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again for listening to the show. Here's some bonus content for today. Collaboration. It's so critical, isn't it, that we in the nonprofit world collaborate together. We can get so much more done when we work together. In fact, I ran across this article on Philanthropy News Digest. They said this, that nonprofit collaborations are at an all-time high. Recent surveys conducted by the Bridgespan Group and the Patterson Foundation reveal that 91% of nonprofits engage in some form of collaboration. In turn, and contributing to some of the confusion, of course, around collaboration, a number of terms have emerged that attempt to capture these complex relationships, from formal partnerships and mergers to collective impact efforts. There are more than a few ways to approach collaboration. 
Now, one of the key outcomes that happens when we collaborate is, number one, greater efficiency as well as greater effectiveness. And we all want that, right? And another key outcome when a large group of nonprofits combine efforts in collaboration is to bring about systemic or broad social change around a certain issue impacting a community. Whatever the outcome may be, the right collaboration with like-minded nonprofits is always a good idea. So here's my question to you. How are you collaborating? In order to increase your collective impact, what are you doing to look for collaboration opportunities? Along the way, what are some of the challenges you've faced? And what are some of the victories? I'd love to hear from you. Go to my website, send me an email, let me know what you're doing to uh, look for more opportunities to collaborate with other nonprofits and what have your results been? Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. Until next time, keep making your world better. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.